Welcome to episode 227 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Focus. That's the word of the year that many have selected for 2021. And I know because I heard back from so many readers over the last few weeks after sharing my email titled, A Twist on Quarterly Goal Setting, where I asked you to share your word of the year. And if you missed it, I suggest you look for it in your inbox because it really struck a chord with many, especially my explanation of how to use the four weeks in between 12-week sprints. While focus isn't my word of the year, I totally get the appeal. We all want to be more productive with our time and staying focused or getting back on track is a big part of what makes someone successful. When I'm busy, I tend to be more focused because I have to be or balls will get dropped. I wrapped up a year-long role as a business strategy coach last month and now have a lot more open space in my schedule. That's great, but without a solid plan, I know I won't be focused or productive. As they say, need something done? Give it to a busy person. But now, without so much packed into each day, I could be much more thoughtful about how I use my time, and admittedly, I'm a bit nervous about having so much open time. I know from experience my productivity drops if I allow too much time for tasks that could have been done more efficiently. So I went looking for inspiration as I was designing my 2021 weekly, daily, hourly schedule and stumbled upon an article in Fast Company from 2017. Why the most productive people do these six things every day? Well, I shared that article on LinkedIn and within one week, nearly 370,000 people viewed it. 548 reacted to it, and 33 took the time to leave a comment. It seems I'm on the right track, but with these six ideas, I'll be able to even more effectively design my schedule. Your challenge for this week. Read the article at robbysamuels.com forward slash productive. And while you're there, send me a LinkedIn connection request because I'm constantly posting new content on LinkedIn. Then grade yourself on how well you're doing each of these six ideas. Pick one that you'd like to improve and spend the next 30 days creating a new habit. Then pick one more and repeat this process for the following 30 days. Just think, before the end of March, you could be 30% more productive and dare I say, focused. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest didn't start life with many advantages, but his parents taught him that resourcefulness is a far greater asset than resources. Before he turned 25, he became a published author, launched a product that made $44,738 in one week, took over the business development of a seven-figure online education company, traveled the world to 23 countries with his wife, and networked his way into an exclusive mastermind for the world's top thought leaders that cost $25,000 a year to attend. He is on a mission to change the global conversation around what success means for an entire generation of entrepreneurs through his newest brand, Seven Figure Millennials. The movement's focus is to inspire millennial entrepreneurs to pursue big financial goals while prioritizing their happiness, health, and relationships. Please join me in welcoming Brandon Fong. Awesome. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Brandon, thanks for joining us from your home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, As you know, this is a show of building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah. So I think my definition of leadership is really something that I've heard before, but I think it's so true because sometimes it's the first principles that become true over time. But I think leadership is really helping other people to become the best version of themselves and bringing the best out of their particular skill sets and empowering them to really leverage that in whatever team setting that you're in. And when I first realized I had the skills to lead, it was funny. I was reflecting and, um, 
I had, I ran for class council in fifth grade and my, my, my slogan was vote for Fong and you can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so fifth grade is when it started, but you know, I, I went, as I went through high school, there was a club that I was a part of called DECA. And I was one of the first people on that group that was, it was six people at the time. And by the time I, I was a part of the leadership, we brought it to 50. I did the same thing in college where I was the president of the collegiate entrepreneurs organization as a freshman. And I grew that from 20 to over a hundred students. So I've just been very blessed to have parents that have encouraged me and taught me about the importance of leadership and communicating with people and developing authentic relationships and really just helping people to become the best version of themselves. And so it's been a thread throughout my entire life. And I'm very grateful that it's showed up because it's one of the most important things you can focus on. Yeah, I know. I love this definition, the idea of focusing on others and bringing out the best in them. And I, you know, I read your, your sort of backstory. I know that, you know, you, you had this sort of moment where, you know, you were, you were on the free and reduced lunch program and like kind of hated it because it sort of, you know, you got labeled a certain way, at least in your head um, and didn't like that. And yet, you know, your parents really taught you about being resourceful, like I said in the intro. Um, so I love the idea that even at fifth grade, even though, you know, you were, you know, around that age where you're starting to really feel the impact of, of not having enough, you were ready to lead. You were ready to run for office, even in fifth grade, which is <laughs> remarkable. So, you know, what kind of kid were you on the playground? I mean, were you the kid who organized other people? You know, did you, did you, did others see, right? Like, was that, was that leadership quality evidence even then when you were like 10, 11, 12 years old? That's a good question. I mean, so the first example that comes to my mind isn't from grade school, but like, I remember a specific time in college when it was freshman orientation, you know, people didn't know where they were supposed to be going. And I was just walking, trying to figure out where I was going. And I turned around and I realized there were seven other people following me just because I had established some rapport with them, you know, being a part of whatever warm up activities we were doing. And I didn't know where I was going, but people were following me. And so I, I think that's been something that I'm just grateful for that. I have that, that, I guess, persona or the, the rapport that I have with people is that it's, it's something that people naturally just think that I have the answers. And as a leader, you don't always have the answers, but you're going to figure them out. (laughs) So I guess that is something that it, it does stem from the fact that my parents put me in environments where I had to, I was not the smartest person in the room. Like they always challenged me to have adult conversations. They would call them where I would talk with adults about, you know, not kid topics, but adult topics. And I think that being in that environment always forced me to think about how I could add value to a relationship and just really contribute in ways that, you know, most fifth graders aren't really thinking about. And that translated into me walking around on college campus and having people just follow me because it looked like I knew where I was going. Yeah. Even though you were like, I don't, you know, I have to sort of give a, a shout out to DECA. This is the second time in recent months that it, it's come up on this show. Oh, really? I did DECA. Um, I went to my state, like whatever, you know, champion things, didn't win. But uh, it was a very fun experience. And oh, it was DECA totally, changed my life. Totally into entrepreneurship. And, you know, I love that that was a program that's still around all these years later because you and I have a, a distance of a few years between us. But DECA is like bringing entrepreneurs online at a very young age. So you went into college. It sounds like you already knew at a very young age that that entrepreneurship was your thing. Like you didn't, you, you sort of discovered that um, early on. Were you were you the kind of kid who sold things in school? Because <laughs> I, I totally was that kid. Yeah. Um, so it's funny because people always have that example that my, my first example comes, I, it must have been even before kindergarten, but like it wasn't a very successful business venture because I saw all these other kids doing lemonade stands. And I'm like, well, everybody else has a lemonade stand. And I really liked rocks at the time. I don't know if you remember, like they used to have those rock tumblers it was like this loud grinding obnoxious machine, but you'd put your rocks in it and it would polish them up. So I thought I could, I could create a rock stand because no other kid had a rock stand. (laughs) So my, that was my first venture. I don't think I sold anything. Actually, you know what? My mom took a picture and she labeled it Brandon's first, you know, dollar or whatever it was. I sold a rock to some random stranger, but that, that was my first memory of, of having an entrepreneurial venture was was my little rock stand at the end of my driveway. (laughs) Wow. I mean, it's only up from there. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, they say, Brandon, don't just like come with a great idea and go sell it. You have to, you know, survey the market and see this is a need people have. (laughs) 
Right. That's exactly. Insane. Yeah. So I guess I sold some good paperweights or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, if, if you're having a windy day, Brandon's got, I, I got it. I had that on yeah. lock. <laughs> so that's, that's really funny. I love, I love the idea that, um, you, you had such a clear sense of what you were going to do and we're sort of focusing. I, I just have to acknowledge that we're focusing so much on like these early years for you because you're still in those years. <laughs> like this is not, this is all recent history for you, but you've accomplished like, a, a, a lot. And I know um, that there was one particular connection you made that really opened the door for you. And I'd love to hear sort of who were you before that and what then became possible once you made that connection? Yeah. So, I mean, you alluded to a little bit of my story. I grew up on the, the free lunch program. And so you, you kind of talked about that. And my parents, like I said, taught me about the power of connection. And we talked earlier about how this thread has been very common. And so it was my senior year of college. And at that time I had tried a whole bunch of other entrepreneurial ventures. I wrote a book that I was like, Oh, this is going to be my thing. I'm going to, I'm going to be a published author and just run with that after I graduated. But, um, as, as anybody that's written a book knows that you have to write the book and then you have to promote the book and you have to build a whole business around the book. It's not just the book. Uh, but anyways, so, so I wrote that I, I, I worked on a startup company. Um, I found out one of my uh, co-founders was using some of the money that we were making to pay for his college tuition. So like that ended kind of poorly. And so, I mean, it was my senior year and I was kind of like, ah, well, you know, do I have something that can really sustain me after I graduate? And I figured I could either try to launch something else my senior year, or I could try to find somebody who was exactly where I wanted to be in my career, my health, health relationships, and just somebody that I, I really looked up to. And so it kind of was like a David versus Goliath moment. I was like, who was I, some college kid to reach out to, to this, this guy. So his name is Jonathan Levy. And at the time he had over a hundred thousand students in his online courses. He had 1.5 million downloads on his podcast, a TEDx talk. And, you know, I just felt like I said, David versus Goliath. I was just some college student, but I reached out to him and that turned into a relationship where I ended up running his marketing for three years, um, helped add over a hundred thousand students to his online courses, helped add over 1.5 million downloads to his podcast while I was on the team, ran his YouTube channel. And that was also the, the part in the bio when you mentioned when Jonathan got into that group, that really, really high end mastermind called Genius Network, cost $25,000 a year to attend. Jonathan got in, he's like, I want Brandon to come along with me. So that's when I got introduced and, and really got to work and meet some of the world's high, highest level entrepreneurs. And it was a crazy dichotomy because it's like, I grew up you know, we weren't poor, but I was on the free lunch program. You know, I was embarrassed by the fact we didn't have that many resources. And so I always wanted money, right? Like I wanted things different because I wanted the opposite of what I had, but then I'm catapulted. I was the youngest person in genius network at age 22. And so like I was 22 years old in genius network and I saw these incredibly successful people, but like I, I realized, and you, you've met, you've met plenty of people yourself, Robbie, where it's like, you have plenty of money, but like you still hate yourself on the inside or something's wrong. You, you, you turn to something else. So it was kind of like this weird, like, wow. So like, this is what I wanted, but now I saw projected into the future of like what it's like when you have that. And that's kind of what, what really made me interested about studying this whole other thing that I'm working on right now is the seven figure millennials of like, how can we make sure that we're prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships while achieving our big uh, entrepreneurial and financial goals? Because, you know, what's the point of being, having the cars and the, the houses and the stuff like that, if it leaves us empty on the inside. So it was kind of a, a, lo a long tangent there to answer your question of where I was before, but I, I was scared. I didn't, I didn't really know. And it's been an incredible journey since then. So very grateful for that whole thing that happened. And this is so amazing because, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, probably wouldn't have made any of those those decisions that you made. So there's a, there's a lot, a lot of sort of unsaid about your history prior to all this that led to the fact that you felt not just compelled to go look for someone like Jonathan, but that you had permission to reach out. And you know, like you said, it felt it felt like David versus Goliath, but you also did it. You know, a lot of people would have talked themselves out of it. And what was it about him that particularly attracted you? You, you mentioned like the stats, but you know, yeah. what, what is there something about how he lives his life that you you knew a little bit about, and you were like, "That's the kind of person I want to be around." Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? You, you said something before that I'm gonna I'm gonna answer, and then I'll answer that question. But another thing I realized that my parents did is they my dad taught me from a really early age that it was okay when people said no to you. So like he would he would he would have me you know I would be at a restaurant or whatever, and I would ask for something. 
And like, if they said no, he told me like, that's okay. Like the worst thing they can do is say no. And so like, that was something that was ingrained from a very young age that it's okay if people say no to you. So that was kind of another thing that was just like, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, he says no. <laughs> and then I can ask someone else, you know, uh, but, but what attracted me is, I mean, part of it was the fact that I had studied abroad twice in my college experience. Uh, I paid for my my college using scholarships and I paid for my study abroad lot using lots of scholarship money. And so um, I was really, I knew that after I graduated, I wanted to spend a lot of time traveling. Uh, and Jonathan had built his business um, 100% remotely from Tel Aviv, Israel. And I just thought that that was incredibly cool. And I love Jonathan works in the the um, accelerated learning and memory space. And most people don't really understand what that means. So I always like to explain the, the, if you ever heard Robbie of the kind of people that can memorize a thousand digits of pie, a thousand digits of pie, or memorize a deck of cards in 12 seconds, like those people aren't savants. They've trained themselves to do those kinds of things, but chances are you probably don't want to memorize a deck of cards, right? Or thousands of digits of pie, but you do want to remember what the heck you read or, or the, the names of the people that you talk to. So Jonathan has taken those strategies of the world the world's greatest minds of, of being able to memorize and apply them to day, daily things. Um, and so, so that was the content he was producing. And I was just, I'm obsessed with learning. And so that was really attractive to me as well. It's like, well, why not learn from somebody who is like one of the master learners and figure out how I can get connected with that. So I think those two elements were the things that were really attractive to Jonathan is the, the remote lifestyle, the learning and the, the, the ability that he's been able to make an impact with his podcast and the platform that he built. So that was all things that I wanted to learn and get close to. So I think I know a little bit of the answer to my next question because I experienced it when you reached out to be on this show but you, you know, you're pretty dogged at getting on this show. I, <laughs> I get a lot of inquiries and I, you know, I only have 50, 50 episodes a year and I could right. fill 50 slots without like any inquiries coming in. Um, so, and uh, what you, what you may know or may not realize is that two out of three guests that I have on are women. And so I get pitched by men and I basically go, eh, whatever, they wrote a book, you know, like, I'm like, eh, you know, and you, I don't know, you had a whole system. I think you must've written me like six times, seven times. And like, you know, not, not very long. And I finally had to write back just to acknowledge you, <laughs> just to like <laughs> acknowledge the effort and look into more of what you were doing. And you were also sending me videos. It was multimedia. It was like very thoughtfully done. And I can only imagine the kind of campaign you were ready to, to do to get, his attention um, because you were like, what's the worst he could say is no. So did you have a full on strategy? Was there someone who introduced you? Was it a cold call? Were you already like someone who'd bought something from him or were, were you in his community? Like, was there any reason that he should have said boo to you? <laughs> well, it's funny you asked that because I had, I had recently come across Jonathan, like it, I hadn't been a huge fan of him. And I think that that helps sometimes. Cause sometimes you think people are larger than life and it's like intimidating. But so like, I think that kind of played to, to my strength, but no, honestly, I wrote one email to him without any introduction. I didn't own any of his products. And, um, I, I can talk about the structure of that email and how, how I did it. But basically the, the short of it was that I, I studied, entrepreneurship, digital marketing. And I was a, a fan of his stuff. So I had been through all of his email sequences. I had been through his website and I just took pretty compulsive notes about my whole experience about going through all of his stuff. And so when I sent him the first email, I said, Hey, I found all these things that you're doing really well, but I think that, you know, you might find value in doing X, Y, Z, you know, however I articulate it. And I said, I don't, I would love to do this for you. And I don't want to be paid for it. Um, and, and, and he offered to pay me for it, but I guess that that's getting a little ahead of it. But like I said, don't, I don't want you to pay me for it. And not only that, if you don't like my work, no harm, no foul. I will literally know, no, my feelings will not be hurt. You can tell me and we can never talk again. And so I gave him permission. Like I, I made it very easy for him to say, yes, he had a lot to gain. He had very little that he had to put out of pocket for it. And there was lots of, um, opportunity for, for moving forward. And so that was the first outreach. And he responded to me in like, I think it was less than a day. It, it was probably like five or six hours. He got back to me and then we had a conversation and yeah, that turned into an incredible three-year relationship where I just, it was an incredible experience working with him, but that's, that's what it was. And when, you know, sometimes you do need to follow up people cause they're busy, but, but for that particular case, he, he didn't need no follow up. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that then you sort of had a, a opposite, which is you put a lot of work up front to make oh, sure yeah. that it was very, very clear that you weren't just sending off like a, 
this wasn't something you were sending out to like 30 people hoping right. for a response. It was incredibly personalized. You put a ton of attention in and you were talking about adding value right off the bat with nothing, no expectations in return. I mean, that is, um, it's rare. Um, you know, I'm good friends with Dory Clark and I, a friend of mine who wanted to get to know her said, I noticed this thing that, um, I don't know, something was a little off in one of her websites. And, and she said, you think if I write her, she'll respond? I said, what are you going to do? She was like, hey, I'm a writer. And of course, got to then help her fix that and felt like, you know, she was like, oh my God, I got to actually help her. And, you know, so when these people are so good to you, these are these leaders in the field, you know, you feel like there's nothing you can do to ever repay them. But then right. sometimes you discover something and you're like, could I just share this with you? And there's, they're, they're people, they're grateful. So I'm sure that really stood out. Um, where did you get the... I don't know, the structure or the thought behind that particular strategy. Was that something you had employed in a different setting or was that the first time you used it? I think that was the first time I'd ever used it. I've always been a nerd for copywriting and marketing. And so like I had been subscribed to, I don't know, hundreds of email like lists and that kind of stuff. And so I was always studying how people were sending emails. Um, I think I, I got a big influence from Tim Ferriss. Um, he had an episode with Charlie Hohen um, and, and so like, and they were talking about something I think called the canvas strategy. So I borrowed some ideas from that as well. So I'm always looking at what's working and how can I not reinvent the wheel, but how can I still leverage the, you know, collective consciousness of the, the copywriting gods? I don't know, <laughs> whatever you want to call them, you know, the people that have come before me that have proven things to work and how can I put my own spin and twist on it to make it even more impactful. So it definitely was the first time I had used that approach, but was I starting from scratch? No, I was definitely learning from a lot of people that came before me. So I'm curious, you know, we talked a little bit about the challenges you faced when you were younger, but what are the challenges as you were leaving college and going into this role? What was I mean? You got sort of the open invitation, and and a, clearly a mentor who was going to guide you and saw a lot of potential in you. But like, what was is there is it imposter syndrome? Like I don't belong here, or was it something like you had to learn? Um, I think lots of it. I mean, Jonathan was an incredible mentor. He was very he 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 gave me a playground, I guess you could say, where it's like I was I could screw up, and he wasn't gonna get mad at me for it. it was just like, okay, what did you learn from this situation? So like he made it very safe and like the whole company environment was very safe. So I never really felt like that, um, you know, completely out of my league, but I, I was expected to learn fast and I was expected to pick things up really quickly. It's the culture. I mean, he teaches learning, right? So, so I, I wouldn't say that I, I felt like an, an, a tremendous amount of pressure because of the incredible company culture that he created, but it was intimidating to start taking over the market. I mean, how many, how many, what was I at the time? I was 21. How many 21 year olds take over an email list with over a hundred thousand people on it and have to send emails every single week and develop those email automations. So I looked at it as an incredible blessing and as an inc incredible opportunity, like to, to be able to really serve people and learn what I consider to be one of the greatest skills to, to first principle skills outside of leadership, which we're, we're discussing, but also copywriting, which is very influ influential in my life. You know, I, I want to kind of underscore this piece you just said about how he gave you space to make mistakes and then ask you what you learned from it. I've been thinking a lot lately, um, and I, I, I was reading actually Mike Michalowicz has a book, um, Clockwork, how to, how to Run Your Business Like Clockwork, mm. basically. And uh, in there, he distinguishes between assigning a task and delegating a task. And when you assign a task, you're, you're there to tell them, like if something's slightly off in the instructions, you have to explain it again and give them an update. And they're not sure what to do next. They're going to come back to you. But if you delegate, they take ownership. And yeah. the only way that's possible is if they can fail. If, you know, now, obviously, they're going to make a mistake that's going to really blow up in their face. You want to step in as any mentor would want to and kind of pull them back from that. But otherwise, how do we all learn? We learn by making mistakes. So it sounds like you, you're right. Like the description of a playground, you know, playgrounds, you get skin knees and you learn not to do certain things. Right. You know, someone's going to stop you from doing the thing that will break a bone, but like right. short of that, you get to run around and experience the, the extremes of what's possible and then learn to play within those uh, limitations. 100%. So it sounds like you had a hundred thousand people to, to play with and learn from. Yeah.
yeah, it was an incredible, incredible experience. I love that, that point you made on delegation too. And I think that learning how to delegate is really one of the next levels of leadership is like, cause you have to be very, very clear on what the outcome is. Otherwise, like, you know, I mean, we've all delegated something and had it come back and we're like, what, what happened here? You know? <laughs> uh, so like that was a skill in and of itself to see, to see learn, but yeah, absolutely right about the difference between assigning a task and delegating and allowing and empowering somebody to have ownership. And that goes back to, helping other people to become the best version of themselves. We talked about in the very beginning, like you're not going to help someone to really evolve if you're protecting them too much. Like you're robbing them of their experience. If you're, if you're putting band-aids over everything all the time, sometimes you gotta, you gotta let it hurt a little bit. (laughs) And that's, that's true. That's, that's, you really care if you're allowing people to do that. So you wrote this book that was about um, helping college students sort of thrive and then you you seem to no longer be focusing on that market. You've expanded mm-hmm. um, because you're no longer tied to being a college student. Funny <laughs> you wrote that right as you're leaving that experience. Um, and then you have this opportunity to work with this very very dynamic and fast paced company. And you you've been using the past tense when you refer to it, so it's no longer what you're doing. Uh, what was your decision around deciding your next step? Did you have a really clear sense of what that was going to be? Yeah, it was a great question. So I actually left in May of this year. So mid mid COVID, because you know, why not? Why not make it a little bit more fun? But um, it it, it came at a good time. It was definitely um, Jonathan was starting to have a family. So like he wanted to take a long paternity leave, which I really respect that and that he wanted to spend time with his family. Um, And so he was kind of starting to set the business up on more to support that lifestyle, like less, less work on his part, more monthly recurring revenue, which was a hundred percent fine. It just wasn't like what I was interested in learning as far as like what I, how I wanted to grow. So, I mean, it was nothing bad happened. It was just the fact that Jonathan's having a kid and it just seemed time for me to, to spread my wings and fly and take what I had learned over the past few years and really just go out and create my own stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, it, it was definitely not an easy decision just because like I had invested so much and it was an incredible experience for me and it provided lots of freedom and liberty uh, to, to build a, the lifestyle that I want. But it was also the right time for me to set and, and, and start impacting people the way I want to impact people. And did you have a good sense of what that was going to be, the, the way you wanted to impact people? Or did you well, have to find your way through to that? it's, it's change. It changes so much. And that's like one of the things that I'm so obsessed with is like, how can I have short learning cycles? Right. So it's like every single, you know, think about how society has trained us, right? We have, we think about our schooling in terms of years, our freshman year, our sophomore year, our junior year, we go to college in four plus years and we're expected to figure out what the heck we're supposed to do at the end of four years. Right. And then after we get out of school, we set new year's resolutions. Right. And so it's like, to me, it just seems kind of broken. Like if you're going to learn, you need to have shorter learning cycles and then you can leverage that to make bigger and bigger visions for yourself. So I, when I, when I started, when you mentioned earlier in my bio, I I partnered up with Jonathan and I launched that product that made $44,738 in one week. And so that course that I partnered with Jonathan with was how it was actually my approach of, of how I approach Jonathan. How do you build a brand and then leverage that brand to connect with somebody who's exactly where you want to be, learn from them, help them out and learn what you need to do to start your own stuff. And so that when I left Jonathan's company, I'm like, you know what? I got this product that's done really well. Like, let me just scale this thing out. And so that was like what I started focusing on. And then I realized that, you know, because of the nature of the product, it started attracting people that like just wanted to get a new job. And and so I was selling coaching packages on helping people do that. But I was like, I don't know if that's really who I want to work with. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't really what motivated me. And so what really motivated me as I've learned over time is just, I love working with entrepreneurs, like just entrepreneurs are the people that are changing the world or the people. And it's the, the, the thread from the very beginning as you already pulled out. So I don't know how that wasn't more apparent to me from the very beginning, but if you can help the helpers, right? Like if you can help the person that's creating ripple effects, that's really how you can make an impact. So that's kind of, I spent a few months, you know, we're, we're talking like May to May to July or August of this year. And then, you know, started shifting around and uh, building other stuff, but that, it's, it's, it's always been short learning cycles and figuring out what's working and then learning from that, improving on it and moving forward from there. You know, um, as we talked about, as we, before we even hit record on here, I was saying, you know, if you don't already know Jared Kleinert, I'd be like, so pleased to make the introduction. Of course you two had already crossed paths. I'm not surprised, <laughs> but I'll make sure to put a link in, um, the show notes to my interview with Jared. You know, he's written 2 billion under uh, 20 and 3 billion under 30. And he has a whole community about, you know, young entrepreneurs 
who are, you know, doing, doing good and doing well and, and creating a huge impact. And, you know, this is a fast rising, um, it's funny, like millennials, not young anymore. It's kind of, it's actually, um, Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're on the young side of millennial, um, and millennials are what now up to 40 or something. So I, 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 I want to, I want, I'm pretty sure this is accurate, but according to Wikipedia, it's 1996, which is the year I was born to 1981, I think is the, so it's, it's 24 to 38. So don't quote me on that, but that should be the approximate age of millennials right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I've heard like anywhere from 80 to 82. So that's, that's interesting. So I used to hear it was 80, 1980 for Gen uh, Y. And then they came up with this term millennials, which was 18 years old in the year 2000, which is 1982. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of how the term first came around. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting. But so, yeah, so, you know, late, late people in their late thirties are not kids anymore. And uh, and then you have people sort of mid twenties and that is going to be the generation that kind of runs things for the next, you know, 20 years or Mm -hmm. 30 years. Like that's going to be the core of the, the workforce. Um, and the, the labor market in general, not just the workforce, but just like entrepreneurship. So it's a really smart place to focus your time and energy. <laughs> um, are you finding other people like you who are who are trying to identify like you and Jared? Are, are there lots of folks like you that are stepping out to be leadership within that space who are, you know, are like calling all those folks together? Or is it still like kind of an amorphous space? Um, you know what? I haven't seen too many people call it out as much, as much as you may have th- thought. Um, but like, I, I think there's a missing part in the conversation. That's why I'm so excited about what I'm doing with seven figure millennials is again, it's like the component of making sure that we're prioritizing the important things, right. You know, so like there are plenty of people that will show you how to make a million dollars. And like they, you see the ads on YouTube and Facebook all the time, depending on, you know, wh- what the algorithm is trying to show you, but I'm in the digital marketing world. And so like I scroll through my Facebook feed and I see the, the, the Lambos and the, the girls with bikinis, you know, it's just like, that's like, that's just not like what, l- like the, those lifestyles are really attractive to people who want like, I don't know, it's just not fulfilling. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm really fighting against that and really making sure that we're, we're talking and having the conversation about what it's like to build a business that makes you happy. Because at the end of the day, you don't want a successful business. You want a business that provides you with a lifestyle and the impact that you really want to make. Yeah, no, I, I, um, the kind of people I follow in this space, I'm thinking like, um, Pat Flynn and, and Danny Inney, Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat Flynn, of course, from Smart Passive Income and, and Danny Inney, who I did get a chance to interview. I worked with him for the last year. He runs Miracy, which is an online um, business about a business about running online businesses. For Was it teachable? Wasn't it formerly teachable? Or uh, No, he, he uh, teaches people how to run their own online courses. Um, he's, got, um, he's got a lot of different... Um, packages and such that you know and of course course bill is laboratory was this big one that people probably sure. knew but um but no i mean like these are people who are like wholehearted i guess like heart-centered yeah, I, family people like you know that's that's the kind of people i'm attracted to and i think there's a lot of us like that in the world so it's great that there's someone like you trying to identify that as a as a you know there's a way to, to to move forward redefine like you said redefine success so um I know that one of the things you're becoming known for is networking because clearly you've applied a lot of these skills yourself and that you have started to create your own content around that, like, Mm -hmm. like a teachable thing. So what is the latest and greatest when it comes to networking that, uh, that you can share with us? Yeah. So I have this process that I teach called the magic connection method. I'm sure that's kind of what you're alluding to there, but, um, it's this, you know, we've, we talked about it before, but I had the opportunity to run an email list with over a hundred thousand people on it. I've sent, so I've, when I say I've sent millions of emails, I've literally sent millions of emails. It's not that hard to do when you have a hundred thousand people. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in this space and digital marketing and studying and copywriting and just after years of testing and like going back to that first email that I sent to Jonathan, I've developed a three-part framework that is pretty, pretty robust as far as like, it's, it's, it's very easy to just fill in the blanks and make sure that it works for you. And like, you'll, you'll get results from it as, so as an example, right now, some of the campaigns I'm sending, I'm seeing over 90% open rates with over 60% reply rates, reply rates. Like, so like, so, I mean, just for those that aren't familiar with the, the space, it's not completely 
comparing correct things together. But like, if you own an email list, a 20% open rate is pretty good. And like a one to 2% click through rate is what you're looking for. So, I mean, I'm talking about cold outreach, 90% open, 60% reply rate. So how do, how do you do that? Um, so it's a three part process. It's pretty simple. The first part is actually, let me, let me back up before I go into the first part. The whole goal of the email is to simply get them to respond. That's it. And the thing that I find that people do so wrong in this space, is they try to make too many calls to action. It's like, let me book a call with you right in the beginning, or why don't you go check out my website? And you know, there's the really common marketing analogy. It's like, if you're going to ask someone to marry you, like you don't just show up at Starbucks, see someone cute and ask them to marry you. There's some steps you got to take before that. Right? So the whole goal of this first thing is to get them to respond to your email. So you can then begin to develop an authentic relationship with them. So the first part is the hook. And in the, in the hook, the whole point is to make it hundred percent about them. The biggest mistake people make in the beginning of an email is they make it hundred percent about themselves, right? Like, hi, my name is Brandon Fong and I've done blah, 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 blah. And like the person reading that, they frankly don't care. They don't know why they should care yet. So how can you make it 100% about the person that you're reaching out to? And, um, I made a joke earlier today when I was talking to somebody about this, it's like, there's, there's a line though, right? So it's like, one to three sentences, genuine compliment. How did you find them? What did you find valuable about them? Are they creating good content? Did you get results from their content? Do you have a mutual connection with them? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. One to three sentences. If you go beyond three sentences, it starts getting weird, right? Like, cause you don't want the person that sends a book on like how cool you are and that kind of stuff. Cause then it starts going into stalkerish land, right? <laughs> so, so we want to keep it concise. The hook one to three sentences show that you genuinely curious, uh, and like interested in, in what they do. The next part is the irresistible offer. And there's a big difference between an irresistible offer and an offer. And one of the best examples I can give now, uh, Robbie, have you seen those, those, uh, companies that these days that they're selling mattresses online? Yeah. So, so this is one of the best examples I think there is of an irresistible offer. It's like their unique, their, their USP, their, their, um, selling proposition is the fact that if you wanted to buy a mattress, you could go into a store fully clothed and awkwardly try on like a mattress that in the store that you're expected to sleep on for the next however many years, right? And try to make a decision on, on if it's the right mattress or what the, these online mattress companies are saying is they're like, we will ship you the mattress. You can have it in your home for 100 nights. You can sleep in it and your PJs get all cozy, however you do it. And then if you don't like it, you can send it back and there's no, no heart, like, no problem. You can just send it right back. That's an irresistible offer, right? Cause like you had the opportunity to try it out. It was very low risk for you, lots for you to gain. So that's, that's, that's the level that we want to get to with our irresistible offers. Another example was the email I sent to Jonathan, right? Like, so I found all these different things I could do to add value to him. I told him I didn't want to be paid for it. And I told him that if he, if he didn't like my work, there was no, no, no problem with that. I would just continue on my merry way. Uh, so how can you create an irresistible offer for the people that you are talking to? There's a, there's a quote by Dean Jackson, a compelling offer is 10 times more powerful than a convincing argument. And in our world today, there's so many marketers out there that are trying to make arguments or trying to force you. But like, if you create a truly compelling offer, people will lean into that instead of you having to force it to them. So the, at a high level, you're looking, you're looking at creating something that adds a lot of value to them. That's easy for them to get. And, um, really has very, I guess, easy to get and low barrier to entry are like the, the main components of an irresistible offer. So however you can do that for your business. So at this point, we've talked about the hook, which is we've shown that we cared about them. We've now moved into something that's super valuable for them. Now, the last part is simply to just wrap it up and get them to respond to it. And so the, the last part is something I call the no oriented question. And I actually learned this from Chris Voss, who wrote the book, never split the difference. And for those that are listening right now that have never heard of Chris Voss, he, um, was an ex FBI hostage negotiator. So this is the guy that's on the phone with some crazy psychopath that's in the bottom of a basement with several million dollars and a bunch of hostages. And he's about to blow up the place. Like, what do you say is the guy on the phone to talk him down from doing something like that? Right. So, uh, what Chris teaches, he teaches this concept of, of a no oriented question. And the way I like to always like to explain it is that we all have a finite amount of yeses that we can give in a day right? Because every single time you say yes to something, what does that mean? It means that you have to give away your time. It means you have to give away your money, your energy, your effort, something. Whenever you say yes, you are giving something away. But if you look at the exact opposite of that, what does no 
how does no make you feel? Saying no makes you feel secure. It makes you feel in control. It makes you feel like you're not being pushed into something when you have the ability to say no. So that's what Chris Voss teaches is, is teaching no oriented, asking no oriented questions instead of yes oriented questions. And like, it's funny because my wife and I will be shopping now out and about and like, we'll be like Leah, her name is Leah. She'll be using no oriented questions because I've trained, trained us, uh, my, my vocabulary to start using it. So what are some examples of a no oriented question? They start with something like, would it be a bad idea if, or would it be ridiculous if, dot, dot, dot. So if we back up to the irresistible offer, if I created this thing that would be super valuable to somebody and I said, I put together a Google doc with all the ideas that I created, the no, the no oriented question would be, would it be a bad idea if I sent that Google doc for you to check out? Or would you be opposed to me sending that Google doc over? Would it be ridiculous if I, so now if I say that instead of you saying a yes oriented question, like, can I send this over? then instead of that person feeling like they're being pushed on, it's more of like, no, that's not a bad idea. Tell me more about it. Feel free to send it over. And that opens the door for you to then have an authentic and genuine conversation with them. And then you can really open the door to any kind of, um, you know, whatever value add that you're doing right there. So that's, that's it in a nutshell is the hook, the no, the irresistible offer and the no oriented question. Brandon, I love how you pulled that from so many different sources. It's clear that you read a lot, you you consume a lot of media, podcasts and such, and that you're tying all these ideas together and, and offering it in a way that I think people can follow along. I hope that people actually rewind because um, I don't want to dig into each piece of that. But the no-oriented question part, I, I think, is really, really interesting. And um, I recently had a fascinating moment where someone headhunted me um, and I wasn't interested in a full-time job and I was really more interested in consulting, um, just having them be another client. So I was saying things to them like, well, yeah, you do need to hire someone for that role. Um, but you know, like, and I, and I can help you think about who would be the best kind of person for that. Um, no, I, I get that I could be, but you know, here's the other ways I could help you, but you know, I'm, I don't know that I have time. And by the end of the call, he was saying things like, so if I went back to them and told them that I think they need that person for this role and they need to hire you, like, would you be able to give them some time each month? I'm like, maybe. <laughs> You're like, what about like 10 hours? I'm like, we, we could see, well, how much would it be? You know, it's like, you know, which is really different than what he was expecting. You know, he was expecting me to be like, all you know, yay! Right, <laughs> and I was. I mean, it's super feather in my cap that yeah, I'm being headhunted for these awesome jobs. But, um, but I knew that I could offer value in a different way. And it's interesting how by not trying to, by not wanting something from someone, it actually makes someone really interested in seeing like, well, well, how can we? Well, what does this look like? You know, yeah, what is this ridiculous thing that you want to show me? I, now I'm kind of curious. There's a big. I would say that you have a lot of curious, a curiosity factor woven throughout. And I'm, I'm one thing you didn't mention, by the way, and I noticed it. What's your subject line? 90% open rate. What's your subject line? And it has yeah. to be open loop because that's the only thing I can think of that would like stir that much curiosity in a person. Yeah. So the, the subject, the great question, the subject line is simply a condensed version of the irresistible offer. That's it. So it's like you, 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 you take whatever it is that your ears, cause they want to be, you have to be able to see that there's something that's valuable for you when you open this thing. So I hate the subject lines that are like quick question, you know, all lowercase or something like that. Cause it's like, yeah, you'll get people to open it, but like you haven't framed, like the pre-frame is so important. Like the, like there's a whole book and it's funny, I haven't even read the book, but I know, I know the high level of what the book is. It's, it's called Persuasion by Cialdini. And it's like the information that you consume immediately prior to making a decision is incredibly important in factoring how you will actually make that decision. So it's like, if you're pre-framing somebody with a subject line, like quick question, you know, it's not, it's not, you're not priming them as much as if you gave them a teaser as to what they could the, the benefit that they could get if you showed them a teaser of the irresistible offer in the subject line. And the other thing I'll add really quickly too, is that I get a 90% open rate because I'm also following up with people, right? Like I think the first sub, the first email gets like nine or like 40 ish percent, maybe 50% ish open. But it's like the follow-up emails is really the secret sauce because it's like the majority of people aren't going to respond to the first one, but the follow-up emails simply point back to that first email that you spent so much time, energy, and effort crafting. And um, that's, that's really where you get the massive open rates is when you're following up on the initial email that you sent. And is your follow-up um, the same message with just like a nudge line or like a, a single line at the top? 
so it's funny. I, I, I use other no oriented questions throughout it. So like, this is actually very valuable for your audience to think about too. So it's like, I'll send the first one, which will be a, a very simple nudge one. It's like, um, you know, Hey, just bump this to the top of your inbox. Hopefully you have a fantastic day. And then a few days later, I might ask the question, um, you know, something along the lines of like, Hey, Robbie, are you not the right person to talk about X? Because now think about that. If, if Robbie receives that email and he is the right person to talk about this, what's he going to say? No, I am the right person <laughs> and like correct them. But if he isn't the right person, what is he going to do? His natural reaction is like, no, you're, thank you so much for following up. I am actually not the right person, but here's my colleague that actually is the right person. So that's another way you can use an oriented question. Another way I use it is, um, asking someone to follow up. So it's like, if, if say, for example, I'll send the first email, they'll reply, but then nothing happens from that. Like they replied to the initial email, but like, no, I'm not be able to get on a call with them. So I'll, I'll send a few follow-ups to that. But then after that, I'll say, would you be opposed to me following up in three months from now? So it's like, it's another, it's another thing that keeps the loop open, but like, it doesn't, it, it's not an invasive way. And like, even if they don't respond to that, I'm like, I'm just going to assume that since you didn't reply, it was okay for me to follow up three months from now. And I think that when you genuinely, you're not being annoying about it, but like, you're really showing that you're, you're, you're curious about the person you want to add value. People are going to respond to it. And that's the whole, what makes the approach work is that you're not spamming someone. You're really showing that you want to connect and care about them. <laughs> right. And I'm actually really glad that I didn't reply right away and you <laughs> because I got to experience firsthand, like, <laughs> what you did. And I feel like I want to go back and revisit just to see if I can pull out of it, you know, what you were doing now that we're talking about it. Um, it stands out. It stands out. I've been hosting a show for, you know, four and a half plus years, um, you know, five, five, five plus years of actually booking people. And, um, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and it's really interesting how I would say how few even send a second message. Um, in some ways I don't reply to the first one unless I'm super excited by the, by the person. Um, and then if someone sends me two or three messages, like I'll reply just to like be just courteous to say like, here's actually who I'm looking for. You know, if it's like an agency, um, be like, well, you know, thanks. That's not really quite the right fit. Um, here's, here's my show link. And, and by the way, here's like more of who I'm looking for. Uh, Cause I want to build relationships with those like you know, podcast guest placement companies, but you know, the individual rarely sends more than one message. Like it's, it's shocking to me in a way, like they're not even trying, like you've only sent one message. You don't really want the outcome and you have to sort of have all this built out in your head. And yet I love this idea of the, you know, would it be okay if I, you know, if I reached out again in like three months, because the way to leave the door open and stop harassing them for the, for the immediate, if they're really not being responsive. And sometimes it's just email is not the right medium or they're really busy or they're super, you know, disorganized. Like you got to get more on their radar. Um, sure. there's, there's so much. So anyway, we got to talk about so many things, Brandon, but I have a question for you, which is yes. my wrap up question, which is one of my favorite questions on this show. And, um, you know, I am going to, I'm, I don't know if you're going to stay in touch with me, but I'm going to find a way to stay in touch with you because like, I'm so, I'm so interested in where you go next with all of this, but um, let's say it's a year from now and we're reconnecting and we're celebrating all of your successes from the previous year. I want to know what are we going to be toasting? What is it that you're most looking forward to in the year ahead? Wow. That, that is a great question. Um, as far as toasting goes, I mean, <sighs> I think it always boils back. You know, it's funny because we're tying full circle, like helping somebody to become the best version of themselves. Like the nothing, nothing more to me is more satisfying than when somebody reaches out to me and say, Hey, thank you so much for showing me this process. And I was able to make this one connection that really changed my entire life. Like that to me is like the best thing I can, I could possibly get. So maybe I need to set a more quantifiable goal around how many success stories those have, but that's what makes me happy is like, I had somebody that used the magic connection method and he reached out to a New York times bestselling author and got a response within a, like, like an hour. And it's just like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Like that, that really opens the doors to people. Cause like, I don't know, you, you think that people are so hard to reach. They're so hard to contact, but I realize at the end of the day, we're all humans. And so what I would love to toast in a few years from now is just a wall of success stories of, of people leveraging this, these strategies to develop relationships. Cause I believe that you are really just one connection away at any given time to really getting to that next level in your business and your life and your career. And so I'm really passionate about building out this world with the magic connection method with seven figure millennials to really just show people how to become more connected during these times that are just so disconnected. 
Amazing. I can't wait to celebrate all that with you. And I remember now one of the things that really resonated with me is I have a belief that relationships are the answer to any business or life challenge. And I know that's a, a, a philosophy that you carry as well. Um, I can't wait for people to find out how to connect with you. How can people find you and follow your work? Yeah, it's funny. I uh, put together, a, I was trying to make sure I had the link correctly. So I put together a special link for your audience. Um, and it is a short link. So I always have to kind of explain. So this is just kind of a funny side tangent. I bought the domain from Nigeria. So it's .ng because my name is Brandon Fong. So I created the short link bfo.ng. So that's my short link bfo.ng slash schmooze. Wow. That was kind of weird to say together slash how do you say that? Slash schmooze. <laughs> uh, so bfo.ng slash S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. And that will take you to a whole bunch of goodies that I put together for you guys. If you're interested in finding out more about how you can get uh, the mat- implement the magic connection method in your business or in, in your life, I-, I created a free training for you guys along with links to uh, the Seven Bigger Millennials podcast, which I recently created um, and a whole bunch of other bonuses. I-, I think, oh, one thing, here's the one thing I always do one of the most valuable things I know I could do for you is like, what if I just wrote some magic connection method emails for you? So, so for your audience, if you go to bfo.ng slash schmooze, you will get a a bunch of those, uh, what I call automatic emails for you. It's a small sample of them. So you can just copy and paste and uh, start getting some results as soon as possible. So that's that. Um, But besides that, my new podcast is the seven figure millennials podcast. You can find that anywhere podcasts are found. And uh, my site is brandon-fong.com. And that's the hub for all the other stuff I have going on. We will have all those links in the show notes at onthishmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brandon. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 227. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Are you a professional speaker looking to become more confident presenting virtually, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a Zoom producer? We should chat, because you'd probably be an ideal candidate for the 5% Advantage program. Held only a few times a year, participants of my four-week program are eligible to become certified virtual event professionals, hashtag no more bad Zoom. A select few will become Zoom producers who will join my expanding team to help me serve my clients as they strategically bring their events online. It's a great additional revenue stream where you can earn $200 or more an hour. The next cohort of 6 to 12 participants begins on January 28th. The fee is going to be $2,250, but if you register by the early bird deadline, Saturday, January 16th, you'll only pay $1,500. That's a $750 savings. You email me and I'll share all the details. Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. That's R-O-B-B-I-E at R-O-B-B-I-E-S-A-M-U-E-L-S.com. I'd be very happy to schedule a chat to see if this is the right fit for your goals. And if you enjoyed this episode with Brandon, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another town professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions. They get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.